Would you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans? I'm going to come down here because no point in being up there when you're down here. You can all see me okay, can't you? Come down here. Good. Turn to the book of Romans. This is kind of interesting. There's no children to dismiss, no offerings to take. I don't know what to do with myself. But this evening, we are going to begin a study of the book of Romans. And... um, going to be taking it at, a, at approximately, approximately a chapter a week, and uh, so I encourage you to stay with us each week, because um, the book of Romans is um, an incredible book of scripture. Um, listen to what Martin Luther has to say about it. He wrote that the epistle to the Romans is the true masterpiece of the New Testament, and the very purest gospel, which is well worthy and deserving that a Christian man should not only learn it by heart, word for word, but also that he should daily deal with it as the daily bread of men's souls. It can never be too much or too well read or studied. And the more it is handled, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. So we're all going to commit it word for word to memory. Now, you know that the Reformation that Martin Luther was instrumental in bringing about, the Protestant Reformation, had its root in the first chapter of the book of Romans. We're going to read the verse of scripture that says, the just shall live by faith. Martin Luther, when he read that, it uh, burst upon the horizons of his understanding and broke him free from the shackles of the Roman tradition, the Roman church, and he became the father of the Protestant Reformation. Had that not happened, had it not been for these precious words quoted from Habakkuk here in the book of Romans, there's no telling where we'd be tonight. You know what I'm saying? This is an important book of scripture. It's a masterpiece. Now Paul the Apostle is the writer. Um, He wrote it from the city of Corinth, most probably, on his third missionary journey, he stayed in Corinth for a period of time, and while he was there, wrote to the Romans because he was not going to go see them. We'll read about this in a little bit. But he wrote to a church that had been established without his going. No apostle had ever been to the city of Rome, And yet there was a thriving church there that Paul wrote a letter to. And he doesn't write to correct any problems as he did with some of the churches. Wrote to the Galatians to correct the problems of the Judaizers. Wrote to the Corinthians to correct some of the abuses in the uh, the church. He didn't write to the Romans to correct anything. So evidently they were doing pretty well. And yet no apostle had ever been there. How in the world did that happen? How could God do something without an apostle? Hmm? Well, God is able to do some incredible things, even without men. And, but in fact, Paul, though he had not visited the city of Rome, was probably, most probably, responsible for the establishing of that church in a sort of a vicarious sense. Because the people 
because Paul was ministering to people all over the Roman Empire and Rome being the center of that empire, the capital really of the whole world at that time, was like a magnet drawing people to it because of politics and commerce and you name it. And these people that Paul was touching with the gospel in other parts of the, of the empire were coming to Rome, preaching the gospel, and a church was established. Probably the key people, or some of the key people, was Aquila and Priscilla that Paul encountered in, the, in Corinth. Acts tells us that Aquila and Priscilla were expelled from the city of Rome because of Jewish, they were Jews and they were being persecuted. They went to the city of Corinth. Paul met them there, led them to Christ, and worked with them because they were all, uh, or they were both tent makers. Then he took them to Ephesus, remember, and they had, the Bible tells us in the book of Acts, that they had a, a ministry there, Aquila and Priscilla, and a mighty ministry. The Lord used them in a very special way. Well, at the end of the book of Romans, you discover Paul greeting Aquila and Priscilla in Rome. So somehow or another, they had made the journey from at least Ephesus to Rome, and uh, it's most likely that they were a part of the establishing of that church, or at least some uh, strong founding members in that congregation. Well, Paul writes this letter to the book or to the church in Rome. Um, like I said, not to correct any problems, but because he uh, was not had was not able to go at this time and had been hindered from going up till this point, he wanted to lay down a precise declaration of the gospel. And so that's what the book of Romans really is. A very precise, very complete accounting of the truth of the gospel. The beauty, the, the uh, freedom, the, the, profound, the profound impact of the gospel is laid out for us in the book of Romans. Let's begin by reading verse 1. Verse 1 through verse 7 is the introduction to the letters, kind of the salutation or the greeting. You know, um, these letters in Bible times were signed at the beginning. You know, at least that was a little more honest. You know, you open a letter and uh, you can tell right off who it is that's talking to you rather than reading through all this junk and getting to the bottom and find out who's saying it. I always, I always hate that, especially when you get a letter, uh, you know, that's not real nice. And you have to read through all this stuff, people, you know, saying all these not-so-nice things, and you're wondering all the way through, because you don't want to cheat. You don't want to go to the bottom and find out who it is, you know. So you just stand there and take it, oh, 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 no, oh, and hurt your way all the way through, and then find out who the culprit is. Well, at least they were a little more honest in those days and told you right up front who it was. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated, separate it to the gospel of God. It's important to see that Paul doesn't uh, build himself up as some kind of very special elite person. But right at the very beginning, he says a servant, a servant, a bond servant, one who has no rights in himself, one who is completely and totally committed to the service of his master. Now, you know, as servants of Jesus Christ, we are not so because God forces us to be. We are not servants of Jesus Christ because he stands over us with a whip. We are servants of Jesus Christ because we desire it. 
Paul was not um, not a servant of Jesus Christ because he had no other choice or was given no other choice. But he was a servant of Jesus Christ because he found himself desiring that place of, of servitude because of the, of the matchless grace that had been shown him. On the road to Damascus, when Paul was knocked off his horse, and stood there blinded by the glory of Jesus Christ and, and uh, said, Who are you? And he said, Well, I'm, I'm Jesus whom you persecute. And he responded by saying, Lord. And then he said, What would you have me do? From that point on, Paul was a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, there really isn't any, uh, any greater uh, name that we could go by, any greater title that any of us could have but servant of Jesus Christ. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, a sent one, separated to the gospel of God. Remember in Antioch, the... Uh, The elders there, the Holy Spirit spoke to them and said, Separate unto me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work that I've called them to. And after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them out. Paul was separated unto the work of the presenting, declaring of the gospel, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Paul is stating here plainly that what he has come to declare of of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is not something new, something that God has been declaring and, and uh, bringing into fullness throughout all time as declared in the scriptures. And those scriptures he's referring to, of course, are the Old Testament scriptures. But this is not some new thing, he says. Concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Now, Jesus was of the seed of David. He was fully man and yet fully God, declared to be such by his resurrection from the dead. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Isn't that neat? It's, just, it's such a shame that somewhere along the church, uh, along the, along in history, the church decided to saint some and not others. You know, uh, because now we have the warped idea of what saints are. There are really only two kinds of people in the world: the saints and the ain'ts. Neither <laughs> either are one or aren't one. You know. And I want to tell you that if you tonight are a, a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, have received salvation by grace, you are a saint. Even you, Ralph. <laughs> Sainthood is not something we arrive at by works something that we are given. Sainthood is something we are given in Jesus Christ. It's amazing. Don't allow the position that God has placed you in to be eroded by the enemy. You are seated with Christ Jesus. 
in Christ Jesus at the right hand of the Father. The book of Ephesians tells us that. And don't let the enemy erode that away. Start to get you thinking that you're an ain't. You're a saint. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the two twins of the epistles, grace and peace. They always go together. And you know, <clears throat> Paul always uses them in his salutations. And uh, they always have to go together because you can't have peace with God until you've received grace from God. And they come in that order. But, but uh, let me say that great, another point here is that grace, charis, was the kind of the Greek greeting. Peace or shalom was the Hebrew greeting. And, and Paul walked that that uh, line uh, of bringing the two together. There is neither Jew nor Greek. And so grace and peace. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. You know, this church could not have been very old at this point because it's not been many uh, years that Paul or that the gospel has even gone to the Gentile world. So they couldn't be more than maybe the most five years old, and even that's kind of stretching it. And yet at this point, they are spoken highly of throughout the world. And that indicates that, uh, that something was throbbing, you know, something was really alive there. And uh, it ought to be that where God is moving, that there are rippling effects, you know, especially in a prominent uh, city like the city of Rome, if there was a live church there, it ought to be heard of in the empire. It ought to be heard of around the world. It always blesses me when I run into someone outside of our congregation, you know, um, at the store, uh, at the park, or wherever, who has something good to say about this congregation. Oh, Zion Fellowship. Yeah, I've heard about that. I've heard good things. It always blesses me when I hear that because I know that that's something that God, that, that indicates that God is doing something good. Your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making a request, if by some means now at, le at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. See, Paul really wanted to come to them and probably afraid that they might uh, uh, take the fact that he, did, he was so close there in Corinth in, in Macedonia and not go on up to Rome lest they take that as a sign that he really didn't care about them. He wanted to emphasize the fact that he really did want to be with them. And yet the Lord had restrained him from going to this point. But he says, I pray for you all the time. I'm really concerned about you. And if I can find a way in the will of God, I want to come to you because I want to impart to you some spiritual blessing, some spiritual gift. Then he catches himself real quick and he says, but you know, it's really this way. When I come, we will bless each other by our mutual faith in Jesus Christ. And you know, that is so true, that when Christians gather together, that God uh, works this wonderful communion whereby we are able to minister to and edify and bless each other. You know, I have a privilege of being able to stand before you a lot 
and declare the word of God and so on, quote-unquote, minister to you, and yet you minister to me a lot. I receive much more than I ever give. I know you find that that's true in your areas of ministry too. When you're serving the Lord among his people, there is a tremendous reciprocating effect that happens, and it's a blessing. Let's see, where are we here? Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as in me, as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. So he wants to really emphasize the fact that I do want to come to you. I, uh, I desire to do so. I want to preach the gospel there in the city of Rome. Um, he says, I am a debtor to Greeks and to barbarians. Now, barbarians is a pretty strong word given the definition that we give it these days. But the, the Roman world, the Greek culture, had, had separated peoples into two categories. You were either Greek or a barbarian. And when they said, when they said the word barbarian, what, they, what that came from is the fact that everyone who did not speak Greek sounded to the Greeks like, like they talked like barbar, barbar. And so they called them barbarians. What didn't have anything to do with, uh, I mean, it really wasn't a degrading term. It's just that they separated the people into Greek and barbarians and Paul says that I am I am a debtor to Greeks and barbarians I'm a debtor to the whole world and what does he mean does he mean he ran up his visa charge all over uh, you know the empire um, what does that mean well Paul is in debt to the whole world and he owes every man the gospel that's what he owes he owes every man the gospel because he was apprehended for that purpose. And especially, in his case, having been a persecutor of the church, he owes the good news to the world. But you and I don't escape that debt either. As being called into the family of God, we come under the, the uh, Great Commission. It says, go to every creature and preach the gospel. We owe the gospel, the good news, to every creature so we are a debtor to the world as well now he says for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ lest they think that he's not coming to Rome for fear Rome being the center of politics the center of culture the center of commerce the center of the world thinking that well you know it's okay you know Paul doesn't mind preaching the gospel out in Hicksville but he doesn't want to come to the city He's ashamed. And Paul says, no, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for this reason. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now I told you that the main point of the book of Romans is to declare the gospel. Paul is going to begin now at verse 18 to really get into the heart of what he is after. He's going to lay down the facts that every man is guilty before God and in need of the gospel. Uh, through this, through, from verse 18 through the end of the chapter, he's not going to argue the case for why we are Gentiles 
are uh, in need of the gospel. He's just going to state the facts. You need the gospel. You are sinners. That's what he's going to be saying here till the end of the chapter. Beginning in chapter 2, he'll begin to prove why the Jews need, need the gospel. Now with the Gentiles, he doesn't bother proving anything. He just says, just calls a, a dog a dog, you know. <laughs> and, but it's going to get pretty thick here. He's going to not mince words. But he prefaces these remarks by saying that I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Before he gets into the fact that we, to, describing our need for the righteousness of God, he talks about the power of the gospel to give us the righteousness of God, which is from faith to faith. And the reason that he says from faith to faith is this. The righteousness that you and I need that's going to take care of our sinful condition cannot be arrived at by works. It cannot be arrived at by keeping some list of rules and regulations, keeping some ordinances. It cannot be arrived at by a decision in our hearts to be a good boy or girl. The righteousness that we need that is going to allow us to, to know the blessing of salvation comes to us purely, simply, by faith. By faith. I believe that Jesus Christ lived a sinful life for me. I accept His righteousness as my own. By faith. And once we begin in faith, it doesn't change along the line. When you come to Jesus Christ and have faith in Him and, and, are, and are imputed the righteousness of Christ, and He begins by His Spirit to sort of clean up the act you know, of your life, you find that sin begins to fall away and your desires are the Lord's, you still don't get to stand before God on the basis of your own righteousness because even still your own righteousness is just filthy rags. The righteousness of God that we experience and enjoy is from faith to faith. It will always be on the basis of faith. Can't earn it. It's faith. Now, remember it said, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. It says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. God hates sin. You know, God in his mercy, and he is a merciful God, and loving and gracious. Yet in his mercy he is not condoning sin. He's not going to overlook sin to be merciful to me. He is angry with my sin. He hates my sin. The wrath of God is being revealed against my sin and my rebellion and yet there's mercy for me. 
It says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And ungodliness means not godlike. And all unrighteousness, which, which means not right. You know, ungodliness has to do with our relationship to God. You know, the first four commandments and the Ten Commandments had to do with our relationship with God. And our breaking those is, comes under the category of ungodliness. But unrighteousness has to do with our sinning against one another. For the last six commandments and the Ten Commandments have to do with our relationship to, to other men. So ungodliness and unrighteousness in the earth is causing the wrath of God to be manifest against sin. It says unrighteous and ungodly men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We hold it down. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In, in the Gospel of John it says that we, the light was manifest but because the light exposed our sin we, we didn't want to have anything to do with it. He says, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. Now that's a powerful statement. Everything that may be known of God, everything that is knowable of God is manifest in us. Manifest to us. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. The Bible tells us very plainly right here that everything that may be known of God has been revealed to men by, cre by creation. Even without the word of God. You know, our history books are full of the story of men and nations and cultures that existed hundreds, thousands of years ago, the records of which come, came from the things they made. Now we dig up pieces of pottery and utensils and buildings and things. We look them over, study them real carefully, and we can discover incredible details about the people who made those things. Is that right? Well, the same is true for God. Everything that a man needs to know about God can be learned from the things he's made. There is no man or woman on the face of this earth that, is, that has an excuse before God because everything that they need to know about God, even his eternal Godhead, is manifest in creation being clearly understood, being clearly seen by them. So that they are without excuse. Now here's the truth. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. You know, if you look back... <clears throat> Through the, uh, or, and really take a hard look at some of the primitive cultures. In fact, just about all of them. I, I can't even think of any that I've ever heard of where this is not true. And on the testimony of those people, anthropologists and so forth, who study those things, 
that basically all of the primitive cultures that can be studied back to their roots have at the beginnings a legend about how their people knew God. And, a, and, a, and by, by and large, a monotheistic view of God. They knew God, but they lost it. They turned from it, they did something. I read a book recently called Eternity in Their Hearts that really talks in detail about this subject. It talks about how the Bible says that God has placed eternity in the hearts of men. But uh, the evolutionists and so forth would have us believe that um, religions evolved like people evolved, that cavemen uh, developed fetishes which turned into um, uh, idolatry, which turned into uh, polytheism, which turned into monotheism. It, it uh, evolved. But the truth is the other way around, that at the beginning of all the cultures in the earth was an understanding of who God was that was lost and continues to decay. And that's what he's going to begin to describe. He said, the truth is not that every man uh, who has not heard the, the gospel as I'm presenting it has an excuse, but that no man has an excuse. They've just not chosen to act upon what they know is true. It says they do not glorify him as God, nor are they thankful. And you know, it's, Praise and worship are the two eyes that we see God with. Praise and worship are the two eyes that we see God with. And by and large, the world has chosen not to see God, not to glorify Him, and not to be thankful. Therefore, they've not seen. It says, Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Can you imagine what a disgrace that is? That God, or that men would try to make images of God like to four-footed beasts, snakes, even men, I mean, you know, men like uh, idols, tried to take the image of the incorruptible God and manufacture something out of corruptible matter to uh, worship as God. What a disgrace. It'd be like trying to make a statue of somebody really great like uh, George Washington out of raw sewage, unveiling it before the the city fathers, you know. Here we have, here's God, folks. And uh, what we have, no matter how beautifully crafted, is like, is like raw sewage compared to, to God. I mean, so as men have degressed in their understanding of God because they suppressed the knowledge and unrighteousness because they refused to acknowledge Him and worship Him and glorify Him as God, we have come so far as to depict God as snakes and four-footed beasts and things. Now, we, we think in the United States, well, we don't do that. You know, we don't worship totem poles and, you know, things like that. No, we, we worship uh, Apple computers 
uh, we worshipped Maseratis and uh, houses on the hill and you know we worship uh, we worship men we've changed the incorruptible image of God and tried to fashion it out of corruptible things it's a putrefying terrible awful thing therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. Idolatry always leads to this kind of display. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. <clears throat> always, people, always, as a culture spirals downward, we come to this lesbianism, homosexuality thing. And today, we would be told that we are on a spiral upward. And now we are, we, are, uh, we are letting people be free and they're coming out of the closets and we are accepting what, you know, and we're on a downward spiral, folks, and getting closer to the bottom. And things are being exalted as proper and right that are detestable. It says here that uh, that those who practice these things receive in their bodies the penalty of what's due. And we find that that's true. Those who, who abuse themselves in this way develop all sorts of physical problems because of it. Because they're not they are rebelling against God. There must be love and compassion in our hearts for those who, who um, are deceived in this way. There must be love and compassion in our hearts for those who are deceived this way. But we cannot accept the lie that they are deceived with and embrace it ourselves. We must resist the over, almost overwhelming tide in our society to accept this lie. We must resist that, still having compassion for those who are deceived and, and pointing the way to liberty with compassion and yet resisting the lie. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge because they didn't want to keep God in their, in their hearts and minds, God says, okay, and he gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting being filled with unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. 
Paul has painted very clearly the fact that we need a gospel. <laughs> we need some good news. <laughs> that was bad news. <laughs> that was some bad news, Paul. He says, I am not ashamed. And listen, the reason I'm not coming to Rome isn't because I'm ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is what's going to deliver people from this. I'm not ashamed of that. Now, Rome was in the throes of this. This was a, an, an exact account of the conditions of the, of the people in the city of Rome. It closely resembles what we find ourselves involved in today in our culture. But Paul was not ashamed to, to declare the gospel of, of Jesus Christ but because, it, because it contained the power to deliver men from that bondage so that they could know a righteousness that was not based on their works but by faith from faith to faith as I said before Paul is going to go on from here to present a case for why even the Jews who consider themselves so holy and righteous why even they need the gospel and then he's going to present the gospel in some of the most beautiful terms in all of scripture.